Welcome to Midas Touch Legal AF. If it's Saturday, it is Legal AF Live. If it's Sunday, it is Legal AF. Basically, if it is the weekend, it is Legal AF for you. Ben Micellis joined by Michael Popak, the Popokian who is in Los Angeles, California, where I live. Michael Popak and I are going to try to pull off a Popokian and Micellus in-person meeting at a location to be determined, which may or may not be a Clippers game, right after this podcast. Popak, have I revealed too much for your enemy list to know where to find you no. specifically at 7:30 Pacific time <laughs> when the Clippers play this evening. No. And, but now we're going to need to post photos on Twitter of you and I together in one room, shoulder to shoulder, cheering on the Clippers. You're right. I'm in LA. This posh background is not mine. It is, it is a real background. It is not a, a green screen. It is a hotel room. Although it, we joked before we started podcasting today that it looks like I brought my blue painting with me from New York. Wherever I go, I bring the blue painting with me and I hang it on a wall. Popak, you are a very posh Popokian. We've got a lot to talk about today on Legal AF. Of course, everyone wants to hear our takes. I think really more your take, but I'll wrap myself in that Popakian glow of what's going on on the Kyle Rittenhouse trial. I got a lot of questions for you, Popak. You don't know this, Popak, but I've listed a series of questions that I'm going to be asking you about things that took place in that trial. I'm ready. That our legal AF followers want to know answers to like, can the judge be removed? Why was the judge yelling at the prosecutor? What does it mean if there is a mistrial with prejudice and more? Stay tuned to why, our Kyle. Why are they ordering Chinese food during the middle of the trial? Exactly. Lots and lots of questions. And one of the themes we're going to be talking about, though, is lots of people looking at her going, wow, this is so unusual. This is so completely unfair. Let me tell you this, Popak, tell me if you agree. Judges are some weird people sometimes and courts and trials don't infrequently take on these unusual and perplexing dimensions at best, but more frequently take on very kind of prejudicial, filled with implicit bias and riddled with error. And look, judges are either appointed, meaning they're basically political appointees or they're elected. They run for office to become a judge. I don't know what's worse. We can have that debate later on in the podcast. But the point is, is that they come in with a set of biases and motivations. And when we talk about justice being blind, uh, I think we see more and more frequently a lot of idiosyncratic, a lot of prejudicial, both implicit and explicit bias in courts. And these are just high profile ones that are publicized, Popak. Yeah, Judge Schroeder has taken on a national preeminence for his weirdness. And he's, you know, he's 50 years or so on the Wisconsin bench. But I, what I've tried to tell people in the tweets that you and I have done during the week leading up to the podcast is that 
I know we're all excited and it's, we find it fascinating and interesting and uh, maddening to watch the trial of an 18-year-old white boy, white man, who's convicted of murder of two other white people. But every day, black and brown people suffer the injustice of our justice system with things that would make our legal AF followers and listeners hair raise and blood boil if they knew it happened every day. All of the endemic prejudices and systems, the, 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 the finger, the thumb being on the scale of justice against the defendant when they're black and brown, juries that are not juries of one's peers, judging people who are allegedly innocent until proven guilty. So I know we'll use Rittenhouse as a lens to talk about our justice system, but I don't want our followers and listeners to lose sight of because they're following it like a stock market, like, oh, this happened and the cookie ordering and the phone went off and he's a Trumper. Don't lose sight of the big picture of what our justice system means to the average American and average defendant in this country. I want to talk about Charlottesville today, which has been almost ignored by the media and certainly by our followers. We're going to bring everybody up to speed on that fascinating case. And we've got uh, four other trials going on around America that, um, you know, that are as important or should be as important as teachable moments as the Rittenhouse case. We also, of course, want to talk about the indictment of Steve Bannon. Popak, you told us, you said, be patient, be patient. The scales of justice move slowly. You don't say that. That's that's what I say. But very slow scales. But but Steve Bannon's indictment. Mark Meadows missed his deadline um, to respond to the Jan. He's going to be indicted. Mark Meadows is definitely going to be indicted. But let's start off by talking about another issue that the Supreme Court is currently addressing. This is uh, death penalty issues. Um, and particularly how the death penalty is applied in states with the First Amendment free exercise rights and and religious rights um, embodied in the First Amendment. There's a case involving an individual named John Ramirez, who was sentenced to death in Texas for a 2004 killing of a 46-year-old convenience store clerk, Pablo Castro. Uh, John Ramirez asked, that when he's put to death, that he has a pastor by his side, praying directly next to him, touching him, holding him. It's the touching. It's the touching issue. It's not next. The in the room is okay. It's the touching. I mean, I did say touching Popak. No, no, I know. But I'm focused on the touching. touching. And there's a line of cases here about uh, different religious faiths. Um, and having their religious leaders either in the room, touching, praying next to the individual. And that this has been teed up for oral argument. A lot of people are wondering here, uh, you have a right-wing Supreme Court, which seems fully embracing of uh, the death penalty generally, um, but also a right-wing court that has in numerous other settings um, put religious, uh, I don't just even want to say re- religious liberties, because we all respect religious li- liberties, but really religious priorities to trump other constitutional rights, like equal rights and the right to 
be healthy and to live and, and, and other things. So Popak, what's going on here uh, with the Supreme Court? What's going on with oral argument? Where do you think the Supreme Court's going to land on this? Yeah, we just had the oral argument and it was fascinating because what you have here is a battle between the First Amendment and the Eighth Amendment. The Eighth Amendment is against cruel and unusual punishment. And after a series of cases at the Supreme Court level, starting in 1976 and 1977, Coker versus Gregg and Gregg versus Georgia, these cases always come out of places like Georgia, the, the Supreme Court said you, you, that a death penalty is not cruel and unusual punishment as defined in the US Constitution, as long as the punishment proportionally fits the crime. So if somebody murdered somebody, death penalty is not cruel and unusual punishment. If a child is raped, although heinous, it doesn't rise the level of death by the state. So that's that that's where the cases have come out. So to answer questions that I know our listeners and followers have about, isn't the death penalty terrible? Why do we still allow it under our U.S. Constitution? We're talking about 40 and 50 year old precedent that says it's OK. The battle between the First Amendment freedom of religion expression, if you will. And the Eighth Amendment was on full display at the oral argument earlier in the week. And interestingly, even though the conservatives, the right wing to so that I don't get you upset when I say the conservatives, the right wing of the Supreme Court, Alito, Kavanaugh, Thomas, Roberts et al., who have throughout the last term and last and the last and the term before that, have come out in favor of religious expression, even when it was maddening to progressive Democrats. For instance, when, when the issues were contraception, when the issues were adoption, when the issues were same-sex marriage, when the issues were COVID-19, they always sided in the last term, in this term, in favor of religious expression. The, we talked three or four podcasts ago about the florist who didn't want to make the flower arrangement for a gay marriage or same-sex marriage. And they were like, freedom of expression. They're allowed to do that. Now you're thinking, oh, all right, well, the, the, the murdered, the mur convicted murderer who has found religion, not unusual, in the prison, who has his own pastor, who's this kind of relatively famous female Baptist minister, he wants, as part of what they do in their religion, he wants her to lay her hands on him during the actual lethal injection. I mean, that's what he wants. We all talk about last meals, you know, they, they get their last meal. His last moment on this earth, he wants his minister to lay hands on him. Um, being in the room is okay. The, even Texas allows all, all different faith ministers, rabbis, you know, imams, whatever, to be in the room. Question is touching. And this was the problem that the Supreme Court had, where the conservatives, right wingers on the Supreme Court had. So you had Roberts set, set the tone early in the oral argument. He said, I'm troubled if we allow this, the touching, it'll open the floodgates of where do we, where do we draw the line? Head, body, ankle, like this is a problem. I, I mean, I don't really, I don't understand why this is a floodgate or slippery slope problem, but they all joined in. Thomas said, oh, there'll be, there'll be problems with gaming the system. Maybe the, the convicted murderer about to be put to death is gaming the system. To what advantage, to, to, to which I question, to what advantage? 
I mean, the person's going to be put to death any moment now. The fact that he would like to have his spiritual advisor of choice put his hands on him seems to be so minuscule and such a small problem that you'd think the religious fanatics on the court would say he should have that too. But they seem to draw the line when it comes to convicted murderers. When it comes to convicted murderers, they're not going to go that far and let that person have every little thing that they want as part of religious conviction. And the interest, the last interesting thing, I don't know if you caught this, Ben, they got all wrapped up in the oral argument with whether the beliefs of the person were sincerely held. How do we know? We can't look into the minds and the hearts of the convicted murderer. How do we know this a sincere belief? But they've never looked at the sincere beliefs of the florist about whether their beliefs were sincerely held. When did they become the, the sincere religious conviction police? You know, it's an interesting question, Popak. You mentioned the Eighth Amendment's ban on cruel and unusual punishment. That's what, when you said the Eighth Amendment and the First Amendment, um, the Supreme Court has ruled previously that the death penalty does not violate the Eighth Amendment's ban on cruel and unusual punishment, but the Eighth Amendment does shape certain procedural aspects regarding when a jury may use the death penalty and how the death penalty must be carried out. And there's a long line of death penalty cases that deal with the contours of the death penalty, including a case that goes back in 1972, which is a case called Furman versus Georgia, which basically held that at the time the application of the death penalty is unconstitutional, although later cases basically explained as long as it's not applied in an arbitrary and capricious basis when the death penalty can be applied. And so we see a lot of cases, um, for example, Bayes versus Reese in 2008, where the Supreme Court ruled that Kentucky's three-drug protocol for carrying out lethal injections does not amount to cruel and unusual punishment under the Eighth Amendment. You have Roper versus Simmons in 2005. The Constitution prohibits the execution of individuals who were under 18 at the time of the offense. You have Wiggins versus Smith in 2003. The Sixth Amendment requires defense counsel to conduct mitigation investigations in capital cases. A case called Atkins versus Virginia in 2002. The execution of a person who has mental disorders violates the Eighth Amendment. And so uh, a lot of these issues is defining when the death penalty is cruel and unusual. And here, Popak, it's balancing uh, the use of the death penalty with religious uh, uh, freedoms, religious exemptions. We hear all about religious exemptions, you know, when it comes to COVID protocol. That seems to be what everyone's talking about. I don't need to wear a mask, religious exemption. Um, but we'll see what the Supreme Court does uh, here. Let's talk, Propak, about updates in uh, Charlottesville. I know you wanted to talk about this. Yeah. Obviously, the Rittenhouse case um, is getting a lot of attention and a lot of attention in Popak. We had one of the groups that was um, kind of helping the litigation in Charlottesville uh, reached out. They're obviously incredibly busy, but want to give them a shout out as well for the work that they're doing and direct our listeners if they want to support uh, efforts uh, for the prosecution of uh, these white supremacist groups that you know, murdered and fomented hate in Charlottesville and around the world. Popak, you want to talk about what's going on and, and just briefly mention yeah. the group that reached out? 
Okay. So yeah, Charlottesville is really important. Um, you know, we, we don't put things on scales on legal AF, but you know, if we're going to talk about Rittenhouse, we should be talking equally about what's happening in Charlottesville and the interesting approach that nine plaintiffs are taking to try to bankrupt the, the far right extreme movement. The, this all arises out of the 2017 Unite the Right rally. I always love the names that they adopt for these things in Charlottesville, of all places, which for those who don't know, is the home of the University of Virginia. And within, you know, a stone's throw of Monte, Monticello, uh, Monticello, where, you know, Jefferson, Jefferson's home. It's a relatively liberal college town. This um, protest was formed when the Robert E. Lee statute was taken down and it brought in the Proud Boys, the Oath Keepers, neo-Nazis, fascists and everybody else. And you should if you want to see clips of it, then go to uh, Black Klansman, the Spike Lee movie, and you'll see at the end of the movie a bunch of clips related, you know, the live clips of what actually happened. So uh, nine different plaintiffs, all united by Integrity First for America, a progressive group, filed a suit against a dozen of these neo-Nazi assholes. And the goal of it was if it was uh, unite the right was the rally, it's bankrupt the right is the strategy, which is to try to get civil judgments on a on a lower standard than the criminal process. These people were all also criminally prosecuted, but was to try to take away their homes their businesses, their property, whatever they have to pay them back for what they did in Charlottesville, which led uh, to many, many injured people and the death of one woman who was run over by James uh, Felix in a car. So and that guy, J- James, is serving life in prison. Right. Exactly. So this is the just to set the stage. This is the civil trial um, brought by these plaintiffs against these individuals. The if if people are finding the Rittenhouse trial to be hair raising because of Judge Schroeder, they should see what's happening in Charlottesville, because a number of these fascist Nazi leaders are representing themselves. So they're what we call pro se, no lawyer, and they're having a good old time. And I'm not making light of this. This is their approach. They're cracking Holocaust jokes in the courtroom. They're getting up in front of the jury and they're opening when they do it themselves. And they're they're talking about Mein Kampf, which is, you know, Hitler's, you know, treatise. Uh, they're talking to they're using the N word in opening like they don't care. They, they they almost want to lose this trial. They probably have nothing. So they're going to spend the next 12 weeks saying whatever they want out loud. One neo-Nazi was it was deposing, no, cross-examining or examining another neo-Nazi. And he opened his examination this way in front of the jury. Hey, what's your favorite Holocaust joke? I am not making this up. So people that are all upset about what's happening in Rittenhouse, you've never heard of Judge Norman Moon who's the federal judge sitting in that area, who's 85 years old, and he's got to run this circus that's going on and give these people, they're not criminal defendants, but you know, they're parties pro se. So he's bending over backwards to give them some liberties in the courtroom that you and I would go to jail for if you and I use those kind of phrases. So you know, we're going to continue to follow this. They're not close to their closing arguments or a 
uh, the jury deliberating. Rittenhouse closings are on Monday. Charlottesville, because of this circus that's been created by the Nazis that are representing themselves, is going to go on for weeks and weeks and weeks. But at the end of the day, I'd be shocked if the jury didn't return a verdict in favor of the plaintiffs against all these crazies for a large sum, including including punitive damages. And then they're going to go, you know, grab the houses and, you know, guns and and pick up trucks of all these people. No, that would be ideal. There's often lots of ways that uh, defendants can try to shield themselves from uh, those types of collection efforts. And it's not as easy to engage in those collection efforts after getting a verdict against kind of judgment proof defendants. And we call defendants who really don't have money uh, judgment proof uh, in the sense that really what can you recover from them? But we'll see. I want to give a shout out there to the group is called Integrity First for America, Integrity for USA. It's at Integrity for USA on Twitter and IFA. It's a nonprofit dedicated to defending democratic norms. And they are suing neo-Nazis and white supremacists who attacked Charlottesville. And so great effort that they're doing there. Uh, this podcast is brought to you by BetterHelp. Uh, there's something interfering with your happiness or preventing you from achieving your goals. I personally love BetterHelp. Um, look, law could be stressful. Um, just the day-to-day grind can be stressful. Sometimes we need one of those kind of mental health breaks to uh, speak with a professional. Uh, and I don't have to go to those like waiting rooms that are always uh, kind of a pain in the neck. And I feel uncomfortable going in those waiting rooms sometimes where you look around and people are kind of looking at you, but like you're reading a magazine, you don't want to make eye contact. But with better help, they assess your knees, match you with your own licensed professional therapist, and you'll be matched with the therapist in under 48 hours. This is not a crisis line. It's not self-help. This is professional therapy that's done securely and online with a broad range of expertise available, which may not be locally available in many areas. This service is available for clients worldwide, and we know our Legal AF audience is worldwide. Uh, shout out to Micronesia, where we are number one podcast. Did we move into number one? We're, num- we're number one and number two. So I saw we were briefly number one in Micronesia. So shout out to Micronesia. You can log into your account anytime and send a message to your therapist, get timely and thoughtful responses. Also, because BetterHelp wants to make these great uh, therapeutic matches, if for whatever reason you don't like the therapist you have, it's easy to switch. This is more affordable than traditional offline therapy. Financial aid is also available for you to look into. BetterHelp wants you to start living a happier life today. Visit their website, read their testimonials that are posted daily at betterhelp.com slash reviews. So many happy customers and repeat customers at BetterHelp. So go to BetterHelp, that's better H-E-L-P. Join over 2 million people who have taken charge of their mental health with the help of an experienced professional. In fact, so many people have been using BetterHelp that they are recruiting additional therapists in all 50 states. Special offer for Legal AF listeners. Get 10% off your first month at betterhelp.com slash legal AF. That's betterhelp.com slash legal AF. Go to betterhelp.com. You know, you know who needs better help? 
I think we yeah. all need. I think we no. all need it. Yes, your dogs. Oh, you also, heard my dogs also, in the background. Oh, yeah, but we're going. We're we're this is live, ladies and gentlemen. It's live. We'll go with the dogs barking, and my <laughs> dogs definitely need it. Let's talk about. Um, look, not everything the DOJ does involves uh, uh, dealing with prosecutions of a former traitorous administration that tried to uh, have a coup. Um, in fact, it's highly unusual that that's an issue that a new administration's DOJ has to even deal with. And so I think it is important, Popak, to your point about Merrick Garland moving slow. Like, I don't think throughout history, maybe just post-Civil War, but other than that, really has the Department of Justice like had to grapple with the fact that a prior administration tried to overthrow the government and create an authoritarian state. Normally what the DOJ does is they're prosecuting all types of crimes. They're prosecuting drug crimes. They're prosecuting white collar crimes. They're prosecuting uh, a, a wide cadre and, of and crimes. Some political. But let me get to your point. When Nixon, who before Trump was the scourge of presidencies in the modern era, when he resigned after being impeached, he literally was never heard from again until about 20 years later when he sort of in his 80s, he tried to revive his career with the Frost Nixon interviews. I'll tell you what he didn't do. He didn't create a shadow government with shadow ambassadors. He didn't tweet or send out letters as the 40 or his, his case, the 30 whatever president running some sort of parallel you know, um, shadow presidency and continue to try to foment discontent and overthrow the government after he left office. So so the prosecutors under Ford did not have to deal with an insane, out of control, former President Nixon, the way this Department of Justice has to do while they have other things they have to do as well that are as important. Absolutely. And speaking of which, I think Trump uh, made a statement this week, even that he had ambassadors speaking to people, which envoy ambassador, envoy ambassador. This is a made up thing in his mind that he's still the president and he's running a shadow government with shadow ambassadors. Right. And uh, which is uh, would appear to be kind of a violation of the Logan Act, which prevents individuals from engaging in uh, foreign, foreign policy, policy while they're not authorized <laughs> to do so. But I mean, that's just on a day to day. He, you know, Trump and his minions break the law every single day. We'll talk about Steve Bannon in a bit. But the DOJ goes about, you know, the work of the DOJ it does other things. So there was a press conference that was called this week with Merrick Garland, the deputy AG, the head of the FBI, Christopher Ray. You know, everyone was like, this better be good. It's like, OK, like, <laughs> better be like, Bannon. Oh. Like, right. calm down. Like, right. it's all it's all good. You know, number one, also, like, they're not going to do press conferences like that. Also, they're going to be delicate when there's a bad an indictment or something like that. They're not going to make strategically this like show of it to make it feel politicized also, Ooh, which right. is not politicized. It's individuals violating law. But they did this press conference and there's these ransomware uh, group called Revel, which has been just going around causing incredible havoc on companies in the United States and abroad, um, causing hundreds of millions in damages and um, requiring companies to pay ransoms and holding companies hostage by taking over their computer infrastructure. Um, but this was actually a big announcement, Popak. Mm -hmm. I mean, they seemed the DOJ with the help of other international authorities seemed to find 
the individuals and, and place at least few individuals under arrest who are behind these rebel ransomware um, attacks by tracing where the money went. Is this a big deal, Popak? I think it is. Um, first of all, it'll allow you and I to introduce our audience to something called the Department of Justice Ransomware and Digital Extortion Task Force. See, they do other things. And this was created um, to go after exactly what it sounds like. Ransomware has gotten out of control. Um, just to put a finer point on it, it, ransomware is when a hacker or a group of hackers uh, surreptitiously enter a computer network or system. They used to do it through the front door, which is, you know, they send you a phony phishing email and you click a link thinking it's from your uncle Peter. And it turns out it, now you have a worm that has now entered a virus. It's now entered your software and they've taken control of your computer. But that's not what's going on in the modern era. In the modern era, which is reflected in the DOJ announcement, there's something called the supply chain ransomware attack, which is it's not exactly what it sounds like. It's not attacking the supply chain, although it is. What it's doing is it is coming in as a Trojan horse through software providers. So software which is supremely important to everything in our lives, from the military application to consumer application to your iPhone, you name it, it's, it's software driven. And many of these companies, for instance, uh, Kasaya out of Florida, you never heard of them unless you're an investor, you probably never wanna hear about them, but they do things that are really important like remote management monitoring software, which companies use and pipelines use and gas companies use and electric companies use. So they've decided these bad guys that they're gonna come in through the software. Software is then, there's a loophole somewhere in it and it is exploited by the hackers. And now they've put viruses over the customers, the end users in the supply chain of the software. And now they've locked the files and they won't release the business's files or they won't allow them like the recent pipeline issue. They won't allow them to pump oil or move oil or do anything unless a Bitcoin or cryptocurrency ransom is paid. If this continues to go on unabated out of Russia, Ukraine, India and other places, you, you see the disruption that happened just three days of a pipeline um, interference led to gas prices and long lines in America. We can't allow our infrastructure to be under attack. That's why the Department of Justice and the FBI and these task force are really important. And taking down these bad guys really quickly, which this happened within three or four months where they got back the ransomware is really, really important. So the Revel, R-E-V-I-L, it's like evil with an R, software, a ransomware attack was really led by a 22-year-old Ukrainian national um, named Yasinski and a 38-year-old Russian national named uh, Polyanin. And they they indicted Yasinski. They indicted Polyanin, arrested both, and they were able to grab $6 million of Bitcoin and cryptocurrency from Polyanin and get it back into the, you know, have it forfeited immediately to the federal government while the trial is going on. But this is this, you you framed it perfect on the way into the segment today. We can't have a DOJ that's completely focused and, and does nothing and is immobilized by, by handling all the other things the Department of Justice is responsible for, but because we're, we're looking at our watches and tapping our foot because it took 23 days for them to convene a grand jury and indict Bannon. That, Democrats can't lose focus of all of the other reasons we voted for Biden and wanted adults like Merrick Garland in the in the um, 
Department of Justice. And one last thing, because and it's it's a little bit of a pat on the back for you and I. We are not going to be sensationalists on legal AF. We could be. We, we, we could we could have we love our audience. We love the size of our audience. We could be five times as large if I just came out of the box and said really crazy shit all the time. And I'm watching Twitter feeds of other lawyers that are your vintage, my vintage, who claim to have prosecutor experience. I've been doing it for 30 years. And I got to be honest with you, they, they, a lot of them are doing it as talking heads to make a buck, to exploit the issue because it's sensational. And when they do it, they get 5000 more Twitter followers. I, we're not doing it for that. That's not the purpose of legal AF. And so we're never going to blow smoke or sunshine. We're going to call it the way we see it through our progressive democratic lens and the story. And so some people may not like some of the things that I post about my view of what's going to happen and what should happen in a certain matter. But but I think that's most of our people that follow us want to hear it straight. And that's what you and I do. Yeah, You know, I had a, a buddy of mine who was asking me about just what I thought the outcome would be on a certain case, you know, if, if a certain case resolved. And he's like, Bud, I hear, you know, they're going to try to settle for $85 million. Everyone's talking about $85 million they're going to offer, um, you know, on a case that's outside of the statute of, of limitations. And I said, they're not offering $85 million. I said, you have to understand, I, I know a lot about these cases. I've done hundreds and thousands of these cases. I know that if the case is outside of a statute of limitations, but it has a kind of uh, you know provocative uh, public profile and can have kind of serious consequences for a company and could potentially be a case as an exemplar that challenges the statute of limitations, uh, a defendant may be willing to settle for something um, to avoid the risk of the law changing. But I said, but they're not going to, they're not offering $85 million. I said, what they're probably offering is, hey, if you want to try to resolve this case for a few hundred thousand bucks, you know, we'll try to do that, you know, and then sure enough, later the news came out that, you know, I was right and I was accurate. And I just said, look, I'm not trying to bullshit you. I could, I could make you super excited and give you this sensationalist twist to it, but I've been doing this long enough actually in the trenches. You know, I'm not a Twitter lawyer. I mean, Popak, you're not right. a Twitter lawyer. For for decade for me and for decades, plural for for you, multiple decades, plural for you. <laughs> okay, wait, back up. What three, 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 three multiple <laughs> decades. We've, I mean, the, the, the day-to-day stuff has been in courts and has been in trials and look, I'm so blessed that on the weekends I could put on the hat. I could put on this, you know, a cool sweatshirt. I could just talk about the law where I don't have to be in a stuffy courtroom, but I've spent my whole life in stuffy courtrooms wearing suits and ties every single day, you know, arguing these cases at the <laughs> highest profile level. You've earned, you've earned the right. And just, you know why this works? I mean, I hate to make it so self-referential on our own podcast, but the reason I think that what you and I do works is because you've been blessed with something else. And I, I hopefully I have been too, which is you have a tremendous good instinct and you have tremendous judgment. What's missing for a lot of these talking heads, and I'm not here to tear down, the people know the ones that we actually admire. That's obvious, you know, like the sisters-in-law and some of the other ones. But the other ones, they're just missing judgment. They're just missing instincts that come. And what do they come from? They come from this. They come from the hand going around the clock, time, watching, 
hundreds of cases, seeing results and being smart about it. And I think that's why this works, because I'm not just some pundit, you know, like, you know, spouting off about something that I know nothing about. And I think I think people are attracted to what you and I, the product that you and I are providing. We'll find out tonight. <laughs> we'll definitely find out. I guess I guess it's it's an open question still every week, but right. as long as the audience keeps growing and uh, keeps looking the way it is, I feel good about what we're doing, Popak. Let's talk about the Fifth Circuit. We've talked about the Fifth Circuit. It's a very right wing circuit filled with a lot of Trump judges, and they blocked uh, the Biden OSHA uh, vaccine rule. It's not a mandate because on uh, companies that have 100 employees or more, um, it either required a vaccine or like continuous testing. So it did have the or it wasn't like you had to be um, vaxxed, although you should be you should be vaxxed. But the Fifth Circuit issued a stay. It didn't make a ruling um, as to the substance yet of the rule promulgated by OSHA. And it's a, an emergency rule um, uh, that it promulgated. But it, it, it issued this stay saying for at, at this point, they raises serious constitutional um, concerns and stay meaning stopping the implementation um, of the Biden OSHA rule. But the Biden administration is still moving forward with the rule. They're still telling companies they need to follow the rule. I, one of the things strategically on the legal side is just because the Fifth Circuit saying that there are other circuits that have weighed in and need to weigh in. And there needs to be a coordination amongst the circuits. And also, Popak, you could speak to the Supreme Court thus far in the cases that have come before it. We've talked about this on prior legal AFs, though, um, have been receptive to vaccine mandates. We talked about a group of students trying to deal with this as an emergency order in mm -hmm. Indiana, for example. Um, and there are a few other examples like that where the Supreme Court basically upheld um, vaccine mandates. And so what's going on here, Popak, and where do you think this goes? Yeah, this is going to be a weird one. And I, and I hope you're right about um, prior rulings by the Supreme Court, like Amy Coney Barrett rejecting the Indiana University appeal and allowing their mandate to stand. But here we're coming into what agencies are allowed to do uh, and promulgate as rulemaking. And we've talked about administrative law in past podcasts. I'm always amazed that when I get to administrative law, which was the driest course in law school and, and all, sometimes when we watch uh, our live podcast, like the followers of that night go up when we're talking about these esoteric issues. So that's a- Can I pause you for a second and pull sure. back and just give you, I want, I want you to talk, can I give you my admin law story quickly? Yeah, yeah, of course. So I took administrative law at Georgetown Law. My professor- was someone named Glenn Nager, N-A-G-E-R. He was, uh, at that time, he was either the president or, C or CEO or something of like the PGA. He was uh, a law clerk at the time for Sandra Day O'Connor, I think he was, he was her law clerk. Um, he was kind of very conservative, um, in, in the true sense there of what conservative meant when I was, uh, in law school was in line uh, to be a Supreme Court justice. He never really went that path. Mm -hmm. He ended up arguing. He argued the Ledbetter case mm -hmm. um, that kind of struck that that required the Ledbetter law to actually mm -hmm. be passed. Um, and he's argued like 20 cases or 30 cases, maybe even more before the Supreme Court. But such a brilliant guy. 
And all of the people who took that class were like, I don't know why it was a night class, but everyone was like in their forties. And I was like a 20 year old law student in this Glenn Nager class. And he was like the most intimidating professor. And I remember I got like a B minus on my final and he sent me a congratulatory email on the B minus. And he was like, really great job. I, you know, I think because it was like all like the smartest people who were much older and administrative law is tough to wrap your head around. Yeah. But it really relates to, though, what these agencies are allowed to do and pass. And we talked about it on the eviction moratorium. Right. And That's one true. of the issues was in the context of a health agency, could they in their standard rulemaking powers about bed bugs? Yeah. With, right. Relating to bed bugs, you know, <laughs> basically extend that, though, into the sphere of <laughs> prohibiting evictions. Yeah. And where that case wasn't decided on, wasn't really on the law. I mean, what the Supreme Court said is, look, Congress, if you want to stop these evictions, go pass a law that right. says that. But we can't have this administrative agency in the absence of a law that allows them to do it to kind of create new jurisdiction. Anyway, so new jurisdiction. No, 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 no. It, it's not. It, it's not anyway. It's perfect segue. So let, let's bring us up to speed here. Here we have the uh, the department is OSHA, Occupational Safety uh, Organization. That's all they do. That's what their job is. That's the rulemaking that's been delegated to them. And they are allowed under the federal rules and federal law given by Congress to create what's called emergency temporary standards, ETSs. And they are automatically imposed um, as long as they're published in the Federal Register without public comment, which is normal rulemaking, requires public comment and a very long period of time. It could take a year or more to get a rule through the normal procedure, the emergency temporary standard procedure allows for almost an instantaneous um, creation of a rule and enforcement of a rule, as long as there are certain criteria that are met about safety and health um, and preserving human resources and trying to prevent, you know, um, agents and toxic agents and harmful things and physical harmful things in the workplace which sounds like an airborne virus and a pandemic that's killing people, but not to the Fifth Circuit, which is going to be the bane of Biden's existence. I can just tell every there. First of all, it's going to be the circuit of choice for all of the Republicans and right wings to bring their, you know, crazy abortion ban and, and you know, redistricting when it comes to when it comes to voting. They're going to run it through Texas, Louisiana and all the other states that make up the Fifth Circuit because they have a friendly um, environment or receptivity at the Fifth Circuit. So follow along, everyone, from now until the end of this term and beyond. You're going to hear us talking a lot about the Fifth Circuit, same circuit that that ruled against staying the Texas abortion ban, which is what is up on appeal with the Supreme Court of the United States. So what have they done here? Well, a judge that was appointed by Trump, along with two other judges, so a three-judge panel of the Fifth Circuit, in this case, Judge um, Kurt Engelhart, issued a rule just the other day that said that the emergency temporary standard, which required companies of 100 or more to either mandate vaccine or daily or weekly testing, whatever it was, is beyond the scope and powers of OSHA, despite an overreaching of what their jurisdiction is, 
despite all the things I just talked about. And they actually said, Engelhardt actually went on to say, not only is it a gross overreach and likely unconstitutional in, in terms of delegation and unlawful, but he actually said that basically two things, the airborne virus, which is COVID, is really not that bad anymore. People aren't really dying from it the way they used to be. And so this is not part of their mandate as to protect workers in the workplace. And so, you know, he, he spends time being a scientist and a, a virologist to talk about why he thinks um, COVID-19 is no longer a, a health crisis. And the second thing that I thought was um, uh, really outstanding is that, you know, he started it off with saying the last OSHA under Trump never issued an ETS, an, an emergency temporary standard. So why is the current administration doing it. And this is where elections matter, because Trump was in office just long enough to put his lackeys in OSHA, and they refused because he threatened them to take the pandemic seriously and issue any mandates and any standards. First first line of the order by Engelhart was, well, prior OSHA didn't do it, so it really can't be that big of an emergency. What changed? Must have been the election. So, you know, you said earlier that Trump in another podcast that Trump was successful in like hollowing out all of these agencies, administrations, you know, departments and putting in, getting rid of laws and regulations, making them toothless. And, and, and the repercussion is even after he left office, we got to deal with Republican right-wing uh, judges who point to what those agencies did under Trump or did not do under Trump. And that's the starting point for their analysis. Absolutely. We were talking on the Brothers Midas Touch podcast the other day. We were just saying, we're like, why do we even know who Dr. Fauci is? Like, why are we even talking about a Dr. Fauci? Like the fact that the GQP right wing has politicized this so much that the people in these positions of uh, health and safety who are literally bureaucrats who we never even knew about, who were just trying to help people um, stay safe and keep their family safe, yeah. are now enemy number one of the right wing, is something that should never be politicized. It should never even be a legal controversy. Can I give you the difference? And, I'll, and I think I may have told this story before. I was lucky enough to meet Dr. Fauci when I was in college in 1980-something. And he was then the rock star of the AIDS epidemic in the sense of his team at NIH was really at the forefront of finding a cure and thera therapeutic uh, ways to approach the AIDS crisis, which was, people forget, but in the 1980s and into the 90s, it was a pandemic, an epidemic that was killing um, everybody from blood transfusion people to the gay community. I met him, he came to NYU and gave a speech. And in the back of my mind, I thought, this guy's like a rock star. I hope I never have to hear about him again. But this guy was amazing. And he was in his 40s and I was, you know, 20, probably 19 or 20. I never heard about the guy again. I sort of followed him a little bit because I'd met him. So as life went on and we had Ebola and we had, you know, other things, you know, MERS that came out, I, his name would pop up. But the fact that he's been vilified today instead of celebrated, for helping to keep America safe is, is just a sad commentary on the right wing crazies that we, you and I now have to live with. Do you remember just the right wing when they 
excoriated Obama over his handling of the Ebola outbreak. I think you had like David Perdue, Chicken Perdue, and he was a senator basically <laughs> saying how it showed a failure of leadership there. And then basically saying it's a totally different situation, you know, now when it comes to COVID. I mean, over Ebola, which was handled perfectly. I think I mean, we had you know, three deaths from Ebola, maybe two. It's it's such a hypocrisy and it just really makes me sad that they would politicize health and you know, not to turn this into overly political like the brothers show, though. But, you know, this we need to really fight for, though, is a legal system and a justice system and a health system that follows the law and that follows the science and that we could hopefully deal with trials that involve the presumption on the criminal side, the presumption of innocence, the right to a jury, and then the let the legal process sort itself out without having to hear a judge turning on his phone and it rings and it plays the Trump anthem um, as, as trials about to gear up that specific day. Anyway, this podcast is also brought to you by Athletic Greens, the health and wellness company that makes comprehensive daily nutrition really simple. Popak, I used to before AG1, which is this category leading superfood product, which brings comprehensive and convenient daily nutrition to everybody. I used to have shelves filled with all of the vitamins. I was kind of like, I thought of myself as the connoisseur. I'd go into those vitamin stores and like go, that gummy looks good. And that gummy looks good. I really wouldn't know what I was doing. You had to move. Like, I thought you had to move to a different house for to just to house <laughs> all of your medicinal vitamins and things. Well, I'll show you if, if we meet up and, and, you, and you come over, I would show you all of the, the the shelf that still has the legacy vitamins, but a AG1 makes it super simple. It's like a green drink. I put the powder in, I put the water in, I drink it in the morning before I start my day and it gives me energy. It makes me feel great. And I know that I can get all my vitamins in that serving. Specifically, one tasty scoop of AG1 contains 75 vitamins, minerals, and whole food sourced ingredients, including multivitamin, multimineral, probiotic, green superfood blend, and more in one convenient daily serving. What do you like about it, Popak? I was sort of floored by the whole concept of AG1 because as I, I've said before, and I really like the sponsor, that I never was a green juice person. That would sort of be the last thing I'd want in the morning. But the fact that, you know, with my on-the-go career and lifestyle, that I can in one two-minute um, event take a pack of this uh, supercharged superfood, put it in a glass of water, and just you know, go about my day knowing in the back of my mind that I've now gotten really all the prebiotic and probiotic and vitamins and minerals that I need um, is really is really fascinating. And I've started using it since they became a sponsor, including on this sort of long road trip that I'm on for work that will end with you and I watching a basketball game tonight. And I don't know, it's just given me a lot of confidence that my own health system, my own personal health system is being properly maintained uh, and that I'm doing something for it uh, by having that, that drink. So you should join the movement of athletes and life leets and moms and dads and rookies, first timers like I was and Ben was and everyone in between 
and take ownership of their daily health and focusing on the nutritional products they really need in the simplest manner possible. That's, that's essentialist nutrition. To make it easy, Athletic Greens is going to give you an immune-supporting free one-year supply of vitamin D and five free travel packs with your first purchase if you visit athleticgreens.com slash legal AF. That's athleticgreens.com slash legal AF. Again, simply visit athleticgreens.com slash legal AF for that free one-year supply of vitamin D and five free travel packs with your purchase and take control of your health and give AG1 a try like Popak and I did and love it today. Let's talk Popak about January 6th committee updates. Popak drinking a martini glass filled with water, Popak. I, I suppose that's water, right? I mean, I had to take a drink of water before we start with Bannon. Because I thought, Popak, that if that's not water, you're about to get hyped up for this Clippers game we're going to tonight. <laughs> I'm going to have a wild Popoki and I'm going to have to uh, going to have to reel in there. I'm going to have our our viewers and Let listeners my hair down. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> so, you know, you take a sip, but I take a celebrate. I, I take a celebratory sip, oh, yeah. Popak. Because Bannon was indicted. I'll just leave it there, Popak. You took the sip. Now tell us the juice. <laughs> okay, here we go. As predicted, right? Just be patient. We have an indictment on two counts of criminal contempt one for not producing documents to the Jan 6 Select Committee, and the other not testifying in front of the Jan 6 Committee. And why is this so important? And why is it so fascinating? Because it's the first time in the history of our democracy that a person who's asserted the executive privilege has been indicted criminally for contempt. And what do I mean by that? There are DOJ memos that go back to even Obama and beyond Obama, including with Democratic administrations that that have been developed by the Department of Justice that have told prosecutors that when someone is asserting the executive privilege, it is very difficult to indict them. Uh, and, and, And a prosecutor should be wary of doing that. And that has to do with the separation of powers and the uh, sanctity of the executive privilege when it's properly exercised by somebody who's not insane and bent on a coup and over over overthrowing the United States government, as Trump was. So that's the starting point that the the prosecutor goes to his shelf or her shelf and pulls out a, a manual literally a DOJ manual, and goes to the chapter on executive privilege and criminal contempt. And there's a memo that's been written that is their guidance that says, uh, pause, pump the brakes, make sure you get all your ducks in a row before you do that. Department of Justice smartly decided to use the grand jury process to have an indictment issued rather than do it by way of information, which would have been without the grand jury, just a stronger way to charge somebody. And so in order to do that, and this is where I'm going to now catch up and pull together a week's worth of tweets and and try to answer as many of these issues as I can, it it takes more than a minute to get a grand jury assembled. You know, the, the trial level jury can take a week or more to get together. A grand jury was not already in existence. Sometimes grand juries are in existence already, and then you just bring new issues in front of them if you're allowed to do that. We talked about in New York, 
Cy Vance and the state grand jury is already in process. And so that's easy. You just walk in on the Tuesday, Wednesday, Friday of the grand jury and you present your evidence if you're the prosecutor. But if there is no grand jury already in place and there wasn't one in place before the referral from Congress to the Department of Justice, you have to create a grand jury, which means you have to go to a judge. There's a process you have to use to have one uh, put into place. Then once the grand jury is established, then the judge and the prosecutors have to work to seat a grand jury, which is 23 members out of a pool of hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of people. And given COVID and given all sorts of other um, excuses and absences that people can come up with, it's very hard to select 23 people who are going to sit for a few weeks or a couple of weeks to hear evidence um, to, even though this one was relatively straightforward yet yeah, and people get off of grand juries and juries all the time. So it takes more than a minute to actually get a grand jury. Then you have to select and seat a grand jury. And then the prosecutor by himself or herself, there's no judge in the room with, and there's no defendant in the room on a grand jury presents evidence to the grand jury in order to have them issue ultimately, if, if it's successful, an indictment, in this case, on two counts, misdemeanor counts under federal law. And once the indictment is issued, then the prosecutor actually has to sign on the dotted line on the bottom of the indictment for it to be effective and say that he or she adopts the indictment that's been issued by the grand jury. And then you have an arrest or in this case, a, uh, a self-surrender, which has been arranged for Monday, uh, probably by Monday afternoon, there'll be a first appearance by Bannon where he will likely, as I've predicted, plead not guilty. He will continue to argue at that hearing and at other hearings that he has a executive privilege right. He's going to continue to harp, you know, harp on this executive privilege. And the judge, who is a, as everybody has pointed out, is a Trump appointee. Um, who served in the Bush administration in the Department of Justice, who worked for a couple of you know, pretty well-known high-end uh, white shoe firms in Washington, D.C. before he got appointed. Um, and Trump stuck with them because the committee during the selection process at the Congress level rejected his candidacy once. Trump stood by him and got him, got him into that position on the federal circuit. And look, he's a mixed bag. He's the Federalist. He's a Clarence Thomas, um, a former clerk, the judge that we're talking about here, Judge uh, Nichols. However, he's had a number of rulings already that have involved or touched on Trump, some of which have been against Trump. He had a case where TikTok brought a case against Trump and and uh, because Trump tried to claim they were a Chinese controlled company and they shouldn't be able to do a merger or an acquisition. And he sided with TikTok against Trump. Um, he sided in favor of Dominion voting and against uh, Powell, Giuliani, Pillow Guy, and denied their motion to dismiss that defamation case. That was also in front of him. He, on the other hand, when the uh, Donald Trump tried to stop his tax returns, here we go with the tax returns again, from being produced by New York State to the a different um a different uh, committee of the Congress, the, How the House Ways and Means Committee, not the Special Select Committee for Jan 6. He stood in the middle and uh, initially stopped the production of the tax returns. 
but ultimately dismissed the case because he didn't have jurisdiction. And those tax returns ultimately, at least partially, went through the Supreme Court to that committee. So I'm not sure it's like the death knell because he happens to be a Trump appointee, given his track record. And plus, if he doesn't make the decision that we think he should, which is to find that that Bannon's future motion to dismiss his indictment under the executive privilege grounds, it has no merit. There is a appellate circuit court, uh, sorry, uh, an appellate for the uh, appellate court for the district circuit, which is more liberal, which will ultimately make that decision. And we're going to talk about that very panel or that very circuit when we get to the executive privilege invocation by Trump to stop the National Archive from producing documents in the next segment. So I think we should um, be happy if you're a progressive Democrat, that justice has been served, that he's been indicted, uh, that he's going to surrender. And then the last thing I want to touch on is, and I want to hear your opinion, you you know what, what bail and retention policy is and what the law says. Do you think he gets bail or do you think they do pretrial detention? I don't know. I'll give you my thought. Oh, he's going to get bail. 1,000%. So let's pop that balloon now for all of our listeners and followers. Despite how disgusting he is, despite the things that he says on his podcast, despite being involved with the violent overthrow of the United States, he doesn't likely fit the criteria that is required to put him in jail, pretrial detention until his ultimate trial, which under the Speedy Trial Act could be as early as 70, 70 days from now. So he's going to go out on bail with conditions. He might have to surrender his passport. I'm not sure even that's going to happen. But but those issues are going to be start to be resolved Monday afternoon with his first appearance. Uh, each count of contempt of Congress, as you mentioned, Popak, is a misdemeanor punishable by up to one year in jail with a maximum fine of $100,000. And I think Bannon's argument's going to be a little more nuanced when it comes to executive privilege. Um, what he's going to argue is that Donald Trump is declaring the privilege, uh, not Steve Bannon. And Steve Bannon's going to say, I'm just following what the president of the United States told me, and he's going to make it about the powers of a unitary executive, and he's going to frame it that way to try to appeal to the Federalist Society and basically say, I was just following the orders of the president of the United States who holds the privilege. Don't blame me criminally. Um, and your issue on executive privilege is really this broader issue with Trump. I think that's uh, what he's going to make. Uh, I agree um, with and, you. And, and then in terms of being a win for progressive Democrats, I do think it's also really just a win for democracy here, small d democracy, and just for our law in general, which is we, we for a nation that's a rule of laws and you're subpoenaed to give testimony. I mean, Barack Obama during Benghazi, didn't assert executive privilege and not turn over any documents. I mean, Obama and or have Hillary not testify. Hillary testified. Hillary, not only did she testify, she sat there for literally 12 to 14 hours, answered every single question, wasn't a chicken shit like these GQPers. And here, this relates to an insurrection against the United States. They should be, you know, if they're true patriots, like they claim if they're patriots, they should be willing to go in front of the patriotic congressional committee and just speak and tell the truth. 
What are you so afraid about that you're claiming executive privilege? As we're going to talk about with uh, Trump's claim of executive there. privilege over the archives, and as would you call this uh, specific district judge, Hangem Chutkin, or no, hang him, hang him high, Chutkin? Yeah, hang him high, Chutkin. She goes, um, Donald Trump's not the president, and we don't have kings in the United States of America. We have. The rule of law. I mentioned this earlier as well in the podcast, but Mark Meadows violated the requirements of responding to the congressional subpoena as well. And so likely an indictment is coming there as well. And the same process um, will repeat, at least for Mark Meadows. He was in the administration um, you know, at the time, whereas Batten was a podcaster. So but- Meadows at least has, I think, uh, at, le- at least some a, argument, a little more straight faced argument than Bannon. The, 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 the two two things, and then I wanted to give one last sort of lesson that's come out of criminal contempt and civil contempt, because there's a little bit of a confusion about this crime that's been charged and what can the result be versus whether we're ultimately to get the testimony of Bannon or not. And I'm, I'm going to give you an argument that's been raised by Jamie Raskin that I think is actually an interesting one. But my, my favorite moment from two days ago or from yesterday was, did you see, and maybe you guys on the Brothers podcast talk about it, did you see that actually while Bannon was doing his own podcast behind him on the MSNBC on his big screen television, the banner read Bannon indicted while he was doing his podcast? So, so good, Popat. <laughs> no, I saw that exactly as he that. was doing it. So great. So look, th- this is this is the last um, uh, teachable moment for Bannon for this segment. I think that's important. The crime that's been charged and the indictment will be unsealed on Monday as well. And that will start the 70 day clock for speedy trial for this issue is one of criminal contempt, two counts. If he's if he's found guilty of criminal contempt, the two counts, he can get up to a year for both. So it could be if they're, if they're served uh, not consecutively, but concurrently, it could be two year term plus a hundred thousand dollar fine. But that's not going to make him talk. He can just rot in jail for that. You know, that under criminal contempt, it's either happened or it hasn't happened. It's either a crime or it's not. This is not the minority report. We're not. This is not the thought police. So he's being convicted and prosecuted for a prior bad act that rises the level of a federal misdemeanor that gives him jail time. He doesn't have to speak as a result of that. So everyone's like, well, now we'll talk. He can choose to speak, but that does not expunge or remove the conviction just because he says, "Okay, I'll talk. He's already in criminal contempt. Now, how do you get him to talk if he's going to talk at all? And I know there's a whole a whole group of theorists that think he doesn't want to talk. He wants to be a martyr. He wants to go to jail. He wants to come out. It'll boost his ratings and his financial position. All probably true with that part of the party. There is a civil contempt mechanism, which you and I deal with all the time in court. And civil contempt is Congress has the power to go uh, on a civil contempt charge he can, they can bring it into a courthouse in a, in a, with, through the Department of Justice on the civil division. The judge can then order him to testify, to expunge or to purge the civil contempt. If Bannon refuses, then it actually can escalate to another level of criminal contempt. And if he doesn't testify, even after facing a judge ordering him to in the face of a judge based criminal contempt, that judge could put him in jail, kind of like Susan McDougal, 
uh, back in the Whitewater days. And the only way out of jail would be to testify. So the key to the jailhouse door in a civil converted to criminal contempt environment is by testimony. So make it clear, the, the DOJ's case will not force him to testify and he can rot in jail upon conviction for the prior bad act. But there can be in Congress, if it has the will, which I think it does, they can bring a civil contempt claim through the Department of Justice, which could become a criminal contempt claim, which would require him to testify or he'll just sit in jail for a period of time. Big rulings with the National Archives and the efforts by the Jan 6th Committee to compel Donald Trump to produce records, the first tranche of records responsive to the January 6th requests into the Trump administration's involvement into coordinating the coup, the insurrection against the United States. Those docs are ready to be turned over to the January 6th committee. Trump and his lawyers sought to block that from happening. Popak and I talked about on the prior legal AF, we analyzed the judge that it was before, the law, we predicted the outcome that Judge Chowkin from the district court in Washington, D.C., was certainly not going to allow Trump to block the production of those records from the National Archives, as we discussed on the prior podcast. The privilege lays with the current administration, the current president and the Trump administration's lawyers were arguing for a law that was overruled by the actual law of what exists today. Um, also, these are public records. Donald Trump is not a king. And Judge Chowkin talks about that in the ruling. Popak, I want you to talk about that big ruling and what the district court, uh, what happened with the district court's ruling by the Circuit Court of Appeals. But first, I want, and we're going to talk about Kyle Rittenhouse soon, which I know everyone wants to hear our take and specifically your take. Everybody wants to hear it except for Kyle Rittenhouse. Exactly on that. But first, I want to talk about this podcast is brought to you by QB. QB, think about how many hours we spend sitting at our desks or on our couch watching TV. Now, Popak, what if you could turn those otherwise inactive times into opportunities to burn calories and get fit? That's exactly what I'm doing thanks to my new QB. That's C-U-B-I-I. And it is a compact elliptical unit that fits easily under my desk or even your desk, Popak, in the hotel. I may so be I using be it right now. I might. Yeah, so you don't, you don't know. My feet, getting a workout while I'm sitting at my computer. In fact, I don't know if you know this, but... For people who are watching, you may have said, why is Ben moving like that? It is because I am using the QB right now while I am recording this commercial. QB is whisper quiet, super easy on your joints, and a recent clinical study confirmed help burn 84% more energy than sitting alone. We all say... I'd work out more if I only had more time, right? Well, QB makes it easy to burn calories and stay active anytime and virtually anywhere. In fact, I set my QB up 
in front of the couch to burn some calories while I'm watching TV, while I watched the Colin in black and white on Netflix, Mm. QB, QB was watching QB, was doing QB, watching the show. QB is a perfect solution for anyone who might be a to might be housebound or otherwise need something to help improve circulation and keep active. If you have a parent or loved one who has limited mobility and needs a way to stay healthy, QB would be the perfect gift for this holiday season. I love my QB, my family. I got my family a QB. I got my girlfriend a QB. She uses QB while she's taking work calls during the day. I know you will love QB too. Take advantage of QB's 30-day risk-free in-home trial. Turn your least active times into your most productive opportunities to stay healthy with QB. So visit QB.com. Remember, C-U-B-I-I.com slash legal AF to find the QB elliptical model that's right for you. That's QB, C-U-B-I-I.com slash legal AF. Popak, I teased the ruling. Um, tell us what's going on in uh, Chowkin's court and in the Circuit Court of Appeals. Okay, so you got Judge Chutkin, who we love for many, many reasons, including making really great decisions on sentencing the Jan 6 people uh, and the like. So he don't. So Trump, just to bring everybody up to speed, we got the National Archive, which is the repository for all of Trump's memos and speeches and notes. Uh, Anybody in his administration at the time all has to be turned over to the National Archive. There's a federal law that requires that came out of the Nixon era, the president president uh, presidential records act. So while I'm sure Trump would have loved to just grab up big boxes of overflowing papers and kind of go out the back door with a U-Haul with all of his shit, he's not able to do that. Even Trump's not able to do that. So he had to turn it over to the National Archive. Then you have the fight that's going on between the application of the executive privilege. Who holds the executive privilege? The current president or the former president? Well, the law has already been established in that area by the Presidential Records Act and by Supreme Court precedent that it's held generally by the current sitting president. Well, the current current sitting president, Joe Biden, has um, not, not globally, but on a selective basis, waived the executive privilege as it relates to Jan 6th and the lead up to Jan 6th and the immediate uh, post events of Jan 6th to try to get to the bottom of what happened with the coup, who was involved on the planning side from the presidential level, the the president's uh, campaign level in uh, White House chiefs of staff and others. And we now we've discovered through the Jan 6th committee and from testimony of people who have testified I mean, they've had a lot of people testify. I know we're fighting over these 10 or 12 and another 20 or 30 subpoenas just came out, but they know a lot already, the Jan 6 committee. And what they what they already know is that there was a a war room that was established at the Willard Hotel in Washington, D.C. that had a rogues gallery of people there from Giuliani to Flynn to John Eastman, who's sort of a crackpot lawyer who came up with all sorts of reasons, uh, all sorts of coup memos. Uh, that were the basis of trying to argue that Pence should should stop the Jan 6th selection of the president. Um, And all of these people coordinated by Meadows, this is the testimony, coordinated by other people in the Trump campaign, 
literally had a war room leading into and planning the uh, this march that led to the to the violent attack on our capital. That's what the Jan 6 committee is focused on right now. And so the documents were first released by the Biden White House. They then went to the Trump side to review them. And Trump then tried to argue to this judge that he's got executive privilege. He lost three times in front of Chutkin in a week span. He lost the main, the main argument, which says he has executive privilege. And you've outlined what her ruling was there. Then they wanted her to hurry up and make her ruling so they could do an immediate emergency application to the Supreme Court. And she says, I'm not hurrying. She denied that application. I'm not doing that either. And then when she finally ruled on Thursday or so against him, they then asked a third time, will you stay your order? Will you will you prevent the National Archive from providing the documents in a day or so to the Jan 6 committee while we take our appeal? She said, no, I'm not doing that either. If you want to get a stay, you better go to the D.C. Circuit Appellate Court and ask for that stay. So that's what they did. They filed a a emergency appeal to the D.C. Circuit. Now, we just talked about the judge that got pulled, that, that was selected to handle the Bannon indictment, who sits in the D.C. Circuit. This is the appellate court that sits above that judge. And that is a mainly more liberal, a lot of Obama and Clinton appointee place, and even Biden appointee. So the three-judge panel that got selected to decide if Judge Chutkin was right or wrong and whether these documents should be immediately turned over to the National Archive consists of a judge appointed by Biden a, and two judges appointed by Obama. That's a pretty good that's a pretty good poll. Now, some people were upset because they did issue an administrative stay almost immediately to stop the National Archive from, from uh, uh, giving the documents over to the Jan 6 committee while they allow for full briefing. But the full briefing schedule that they adopted is only one week long. So the whole issue is going to be briefed by this coming Tuesday. There, that panel is then going to probably have oral argument later that week, and they're going to issue that ruling. Why do I think they did that? They did it for a very good strategic reason, because if they denied the stay, it would have allowed the Trump side to take an immediate, what would you and I call the shadow appeal, directly to the Supreme Court and to the one justice of the Supreme Court that sits on top of the D.C. Court of Appeals. And that justice is the Chief Justice of the United States, John Roberts. So it would have been a direct appeal to one justice of the Supreme Court who would have decided heads or tails whether that issue um, was going to be in our favor in terms of executive privilege or not. So the panel said, why don't we do full briefing? Why don't we just stay the production for another moment? Let's give us a week. We'll do a full brief. And then what has to happen is a full-fledged appeal to the U.S. Supreme Court, which requires four votes to take a case on cert. And then they can decide whether to put it on fast track or not, which is what they did with the SBA Texas case. Does that make but sense? It does. So, But what happens, Popak? So if the D.C. Circuit Court denies the appeal, okay? Which, which it will. Um, does then is Trump, do they file an emergency petition to the Supreme Court, though, that yeah. then tries to stay the records again? Yeah. And then you need a four judges to take it up on search, on certiorari. So it's better for justice that instead of John Roberts alone making the decision on an emergency shadow docket appeal, it's a full blown requirement 
And then even if they even if they get four votes to say, hmm, this is interesting, we'd like to hear it at the Supreme Court level, then but then you have full briefing. You at least have briefs and amicus briefs and you have oral argument and you have all of those things that are that are really necessary, as opposed to a backdoor ruling by John Roberts. Yay or nay. We're all kind of on the edge of our seat about, oh, shit, what's John Roberts going to do? I'd rather have a full panel. It's going to the Supreme Court. They're going to get the four votes to bring it up. But I'd rather have it on full briefing and oral argument and search and the sunshine and the light of day. And you and I and our listeners can listen to the oral argument than what happens when it goes to one judge or one justice through the shadow docket process. Popak, a lot of our listeners and viewers have referred to you as a silver fox. What's your response to that? You know, this is why we don't rehearse. So I can get those kind of questions through thrown at me. Okay. A, I'm not sure I like that. I may have to shave my beard because that's where the most of the silver resides. I've also seen some people, including on the brothers podcast that have said Popak for attorney general, which I like that one. I'm going to be starting today, the envoy shadow attorney general of the United States, because I said so. So you do not like the term silver fox. I'm okay with it. I don't, you know, there's worse things to be called in life. Um, I've earned it. I've earned every gray hair on my head and my beard. So I will take it as a compliment and I will tip my hat that I'm not wearing to our, to our followers and listeners. Thank you. What do they Thank call you? you? Thank you for that. Popeye. What do they call, what do they call you? <laughs> they, they, they call me Ben. They call me one of the Midas brothers. Big Ben. Uh, <laughs> exactly. Um, I want to talk that gives us a good transition point to our sponsor, Adam and Eve, Adam and Eve, Adam and Eve dot com. This podcast is brought to you by Adam and Eve. Let me ask you a question. Are you getting enough? And I think when we were saying, are you getting enough? We're referring to, I think we're referring to, are you getting enough sex? That's what I think that line means. Pope. Uh, yeah, I think, uh, you know what? I've, I haven't been around that long, but I think that's what they're referring to. That's what they're referring to, I think here. And I bet you love more, right? Also, I think referring to sex here, right? Referring to- uh, you know, I think these are good assumptions that you're making. Go with it. We're, go on. Well, adamandeve.com <laughs> wants to give you more. And I assume the more here refers to more ways to enjoy sexual experiences with 50% off just about any item plus free shipping on your entire order. So what do you have to do to get 15% off of one item and free shipping? It's not hard. I think the hard is a play on words regarding sexual. Experience. Oh, you think it's a double entendre? I think, I think the hard there is referring to erections, Popak. I think that's what it's referring to. Elections? You say oh, elections? Erections. 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 Okay. I forgot so, what podcast that was on. Go ahead. <laughs> so just go to adamandeve.com and select any one item. This could be a, an adventurous new toy or anything you desire. It's a sex toy. You're referring to sex, sex toys, toy. but they've got sex lubes. And there are people who are like, oh, you're doing an ad for uh, like sex toys and lubes. Yeah, we're not above that. Okay. On Legal <laughs> AF. Let me just be clear. Okay. Like Jordy may do that ad in a better way than I just did it. And I broke it down as the lawyers would on that legal podcast. But let's be clear. Let's not pretend that like human beings aren't having sex here. And let me also be clear here too, that you don't have to go into like those stores 
that make you feel maybe enjoy going into those stores where you get to see everybody picking out the stuff. But like, you know, that could be uncomfortable here. You can do it anonymously. You can get the stuff at really good prices. Don't have to tell us about going to you don't have to share with the world about what you're doing. Just go can, can and I give order you, it if you like can I it. Give you, can I give you that one? I'll just leave it at this. When you go into those stores, you might have a situation where somebody needs to do a price check. Price check. And, you know, do you really I don't know. know. You scared me for you. Popak, you pulled that. You pulled that up. I had no <laughs> clue what it was you were. I thought you got that from Adam and Eve right there. No, no, that was my phone in my hotel room. <laughs> but, but you don't want a price check. And you can and on Adam and Eve's website. There's no price check. You can pick out whatever your heart desires or your your partner's heart desires. And and you can do it in the comfort of your own home. And they give you the pricing right there. And you get a discount when you do it through Legal AF. Yeah, just enter offer code legal AF at checkout and you'll get 50% off almost any item. So go check out adamandeve.com today. Select one item, get 50% off, including free shipping when you enter offer code legal AF. That's legal AF at adamandeve.com. And I think one of the things too, Popak, uh, we're hearing about supply chain issues, delivery issues on the news every day. So just don't wait on your Adam and Eve order. Shop now, shop early, hurry up while supplies last. And one of the things too, like those, the legal AF codes, it's not tracked. Like we have no clue who's ordering anything. So it's it's completely anonymous. Um, but go and go to adamandeve.com. Use the offer code. Christmas is around the corner legal a and Hanukkah. i don't know if that's a you know just transitioning into the kyle rittenhouse trial right now um uh, after that ad read is is a smooth transition or not but we got to talk about this trial it is what everybody has been waiting for uh popak in the live chats and again for those listening on just the podcast audio when i say legal af is live on saturdays we do a live Legal AF on YouTube and on Facebook um, where you could watch and interact with us as we're actually shooting this live and recording this podcast live and made for live. And so um, you could join us there as well. And we appreciate you listening. Lots of people like to listen to it twice because it's jam packed um, with information. Um, but lots of people on the chats have been saying, let's talk about the Kyle Rittenhouse trial. We have to talk about it. Um, a lot of people have focused on uh, the judge in this case, Judge uh, Schroeder um, and his antics in the uh, courthouse. I, I Do we have to give a primer, Popak? Do people know? I mean, Kyle Rittenhouse, you know, basically crossed county lines um, prior to when, when people were protesting post George Floyd, and, and there were anti-racist protests and people um, expressing their views peacefully. You know, I, I saw a video on TikTok, Popak, that like talked about for all of the, you know, uh, Trump trying to frame Black Lives Matter as being, you know, this this, this horrible organization and, and talking about the, the vast majority to a significant degree of protests were incredibly peaceful. Yeah. Um, and a lot of the agitators were right-wing agitators. And in terms of people who went there and actually killed humans, had nothing to do with the anti-racist protesters. 
but people like Kyle Rittenhouse, who grew up with guns in his hands, crossed county lines with guns that he wasn't, he illegally possessed the gun. Yeah, he was 17. And, he, and 17 years old and killed two individuals, shot another individual, um, wreaked havoc, and now wants to go up there and show those alligator tears. Is that what it was it called? Alligator yeah. tears? Yeah. yeah. Alligator Crocod- tears. No, croc- crocodile, crocodile tears. tears. <laughs> My brain is so weird sometimes. <laughs> alligator <laughs> tears. <laughs> crocodile <laughs> tears. All right. Uh, I'm doing my best here. Um, crocodile <laughs> tears. And so, and so Popak, you want to give us the high level summary of what's gone on? Yeah. And then I'm going to hit you with some Popakian uh, questions. Okay, we're going to do a speed round on Rittenhouse. And I'm going to I'm not going to be I'm going to be a little controversial on this segment because my view of this is different than than has been expressed by other competitor talking heads. And I want to start at the end and work backwards because we're coming to the end of the Rittenhouse trial, a trial of a 17 year old who claims self-defense against murder charges against two people that he killed. There are um, there is something going on with the defense uh, and I believe that they are worried about the conviction more so than the people on Twitter believe. And why do I think that? Because they've done certain things that lead me to believe that they watching the jury, everybody, everybody on Twitter is watching the judge because he's a buffoon and he's making the trial about himself. We'll agree. Can we, can we just stipulate Popak that this judge is a total buffoon? Yeah, he's out of control. He's acted totally unprofessional. Yeah. Like, I think that's a given. Yeah, I'm going to stipulate to that. I'm going to stipulate that this judge is is making a mockery out of what it's supposed to be. We're not even supposed to know who this judge's name is. He's become a celebrity in his own mind. He's imprinting himself. But Something that doesn't get talked about is that there are 12 people sitting in that room that actually is the trier of fact and makes the decision in this case. And I, I assure you that some of the judges' antics are pissing them off as well. And they don't, they're not buying into his game either. I've seen judges turn juries off. The, the defense is in the room. It's breathing the air. It's drinking the water. It's watching the jury. And my position, my supposition is they have spotted something in the jury's body language, maybe getting turned off by the judge and his antics, maybe getting turned off by Rittenhouse, maybe getting turned off by the blubbery alligator crocodile tears event. And they are worried. Why do I think that? You almost never put your witness on, your defendant on in a criminal trial and have him waive his Fifth Amendment rights unless you believe you're behind on points in the case. You don't just do it. People, I, I love reading people on Twitter saying, oh, they think he, they're, they're winning, they're slam dunk winning, so they're just going to throw them on there anyway because they know they got the case in the bag. Wrong. So there's a number of events that have happened that led me to believe the defense is worried. One, I believe they're watching the jury and something's going on with that jury that's being missed by the commentators. And we don't even have cameras on the jury because you're not allowed to have cameras on the jury when you do a televised murder. And there's a reason for that, because they're they're supposed to be private citizens um, being the rule makers, the, the finders of fact in the case. That's why when the jury enters the room, everybody rises you're not just rising for the judge, you rise for the jury. So they're watching the jury that you and I cannot see right now. 
That's one. They had they had their their client waive his Fifth Amendment rights and take the stand. That's usually when you think you're losing. Secondly, there was a battle yesterday over other charges, because now after the closing arguments, closing arguments on Monday, which are going to be two and a half hours long a piece. So five hours of closing argument. Then the jury gets charged, literally charged what the law is, what the uh, uh, what the crimes are, what the elements of the crimes are, how they're supposed to evaluate witnesses, how they're supposed to evaluate the credibility of people and other instructions, including one related to self-defense, which I'm going to tell you about. So there's a battle. There's a tussle between the prosecution and the and the defense over what are the charges We know that the reckless and intentional homicide charge is there because that's what the indictment was. That's what the charges are. The question is, at the time just before deliberation by the jury, is there going to be lesser charges that they're going to give as options to the jury having heard the evidence? Prosecution sometimes wants lesser charges as an instruction because they're worried that their case hasn't gone that great and they don't want to walk out with no conviction. The defense sometimes is worried and wants lesser included defenses because they want to give the jury an exit ramp to avoid, if it's a capital case, the death penalty or here life imprisonment. So for those that think the defense is really cocky about their case, they agreed to have lesser included offenses, less than reckless and intentional homicide included in the charges, as did the prosecution. That's that's another one that that signals to me. And also the fact that they move for a mistrial, arguing that the that the prosecutor in this case, uh, ADA Thomas Binger, who we'll talk about more in this segment, who I think has done a terrible job as a prosecutor in a number of ways that have that have ruined the case for him if they lose. We'll find that those were the bad decisions that led when they have when they have the jury testify or or be interviewed about what their ruling was. If it goes wrong for the state, it's because of Binger. I think he did a terrible job. But um, on the mistrial, you don't move. Yes, you'll move for a mistrial when you think you have it. But the fact that they move for the mistrial, which the judge took under advisement and is not going to grant, he's not going to find mistrial or worse, a mistrial with prejudice because he he needs to find prosecutorial overreach or abuse by the prosecutor. That's not happening. This is going to go to the jury. The jury's going to render a verdict. Now, Fifth Amendment waived, mistrial move for, and the defense allowing for lesser included defenses says to me that the defense is worried. The prosecution is worried as well because they've screwed up in a number of ways. I'm going to give you two or three examples. They had one of the one of the victims who was murdered by Rittenhouse. They had the fiance of that victim testify. And why in God's name Binger asked her whether her fiance who was murdered was on or off his medication and opened the door to an issue that had been closed by motions in limine pre-trial to the psychotic state of her fiance giving the defense a a self-defense support is beyond me. And so she said, no, he was off his meds, which opened the door to allow the defense to say, what, what mental illness did your, did your, uh, did your fiance have? He was bipolar. 
So now you've got an issue in the jury's mind about a raging bipolar person that Rittenhouse killed in self-defense. That is an unforced error. Binger didn't have to ask that question. He didn't have to open that door, but he did. He did the same thing with the videographer who was a witness. He said to the videographer, well, how do you know what was in the mind of the victim, of this other victim? And whether that was, you know, supported self-defense or not. Why ask that question? And so he got a bad answer. The bad answer that the that the witness said was, well, right before the victim reached for his gun, he said, fuck you to Kyle Rittenhouse. So now you got a guy reaching for his gun saying, fuck you, which supports Rittenhouse's position that he shot the guy in self-defense. Why ask the question? And if you don't know the answer to the question, then you violated the cardinal rule of cross-examination. You've asked the witness a question that you don't, as the prosecutor, know what he's going to say is the answer. So prosecution has done a terrible job here, but defense is worried as well. And that has, and then you've got all of the bad things that you and I will talk about the judge did, which could give both sides appellate reversible error arguments if this case goes the wrong way. One last thing before we go to your speed round. Wisconsin's governor has called up the National Guard. There's going to be 500 National Guard people or more in the streets around Kenosha and around the courthouse when that when that um, ruling comes out, that verdict comes out probably later uh, Thursday, Friday of next week. We're going to have a lot to talk about in the next podcast. Popak, what was the issue about? Uh, was it an authentication issue or why didn't the judge allowed the prosecutor to show video that was taken on an Apple device and wouldn't allow them to zoom in on him, you know, on it, which what was the issue about when they want to zoom in on? And then why did the judge not allow that? There there's video and I don't know why it was on an iPad and it was being presented that way, but there was Apple video or iPod or, or iPhone video that was taken And it's one of the many angles of, you know, there's actual video of what transpired here um, of of Rittenhouse being, you know, at one point, you know, pointing his weapon, but then being chased. He was hit by it with a skateboard a couple of times. He was hit with a bag. Um, And, and, you know, the TikTok of exactly what happened and why is important to the defense who has a self-defense, a self-defense defense. defense. Uh, Right. And so, there's video from different angles, including on iPhone. The problem with the iPhone is the defense successfully argued to the judge, you know, who's like 80 and probably has a jitterbug phone in his back pocket, that the pinch and zoom feature of the iPhone actually is, is using artificial intelligence that changes the perception and the perspective of what's being viewed. And it can't be entirely trusted the way a regular video or photograph can be. And so inches, when inches matter and timelines matter in a case like this, they successfully argue to the judge that this pinch and zoom feature has so much artificial intelligence baked into it and algorithms baked into it that it can't be completely trusted. So the judge said to the prosecution, you got five minutes. Why don't you find an Apple or iPhone expert and come back? The burden is on you because you're presenting the evidence as the state. And I don't I'm not trusting the credibility or authenticity. So he bought hook, line and sinker the defense's argument. I've never seen the whole Zoom algorithm AI thing raised before. It's an interesting topic. I I don't think the judge was completely right about that. 
and it and it stopped from some critical evidence from being uh, brought into uh, brought into the trial and gave the defense a way to cross examine it. You know, I had uh, when I did lots of civil rights trials, and a police officer would often be the defendant in a civil lawsuit, um, in often involving the death of uh, a decedent. I would represent the family of the decedent. And virtually in all of uh, the cases, the defense would basically do exactly what the prosecutor wanted to do here, which is to zoom in on the decedent, the individual who got killed, frame by frame to the 100th of a second and basically show any movement whatsoever. And then they would pause it like, here's the four 100th of a second clip and, you know, people move. So when I just did that right there with my hands and for those listening, I moved my hands from side to side. If you were to slow mo it, there may be a, there may be a moment where my hands look like I just made like a, a furtive motion or a point um, with my finger and they would say to the officer, so when they did that, did that look like a gun to you or did that cause you intimidation? But in real time, that's not anything that anyone visualized. And oftentimes that's evidence that's allowed to, uh, for a police officer who's charged um, to not be criminally prosecuted or to or to add to their defense. So that was interesting. Um, yeah, yeah I, I also think, you know, and, and I know everybody wants the 18 year old who took the, who took his gun uh, uh, without provocation into Kenosha the night of the um, and Kenosha. You know, we talked about most BLM um, movement. Uh, protests were were peaceful, and that's true. That 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 wasn't Kenosha, Kenosha, which came off of James Blake being paralyzed by the police and shot in the back, and pro. It was around the BLM movement, and uh, kind of all around the same time. But it had to do with Blake that lit that fuse. They were burning down Kenosha, whoever it was. You can call them whoever they were. I don't. I'm not saying BLM was burning down Kenosha, but, but <laughs> the business district of Kenosha was under attack, um, and this kid you know, goes in there with his weapon. If he hadn't done that, two people would still be alive. You know, the problem is, and I've seen this reported by other prosecutors and former prosecutors, even in Wisconsin, there's a working theory, and we'll have to see what the jury does with this, that the prosecutors in Kenosha overcharged this case, that some prosecutors wouldn't even have brought an intentional or reckless homicide. They would have already brought a lesser charge against him because there was enough evidence when you interview these witnesses that would have supported at least a good faith application of the self-defense. Yes, the kid put himself there voluntarily. But the question is, after being hit with skateboards and after having one person reach into his waistband to pull out a weapon and say, fuck you, and having, as testified by Grosskreutz, who's the survivor, the surviving victim, who says, it wasn't intentional, but I did point my gun right at him right before he shot me and tore away my bicep. That supports the defense more than the prosecution. And well, the there question- was a good moment, though, Popak, in yeah. the cross-examination right. of Rittenhouse, where they then went back to Rittenhouse, who now waived his Fifth Amendment rights, took the stand on that time sequence where the pro- where this was a good moment for the prosecutor, where he yeah. did get Rittenhouse to admit that he was pointing his gun at the victim first 
before the victim put yeah. his lock and, and yeah. handgun. Smacking his forehead um, during, and I, I'll, I'll tell a story about that in a minute. The prosecutor smacking his forehead at counsel table when Kroskreutz was testifying, not great for the prosecution, is not great in the courtroom and in front of a jury. I once had a situation, I had a habit, which I think I've now eliminated from my body language when um, and not in front of a jury. I was once in a high profile case in Florida involving a real estate development trial. The jury was out of the room and the judge made a very, very unfavorable ruling uh, to me that changed the course of how I, I was able to present that case at trial. And um, at a break, while the media was behind me, I just rubbed, I did this. I just sort of, to collect my thoughts, I just rubbed my face. And that ended up as a quote in the paper in her reporting the next day that things went so terribly. And even the lawyer for the city, Michael Popak, rubbed his face in disbelief. It really wasn't that, but that's what it looked like to the media. And when you have a jury, and again, I wanna reiterate, we are not seeing the jury on purpose in the courtroom with the cameras, the, the lawyers are. And I am telling you, they are picking up body language from that jury. I once had a jury, Ben, that was a, a civil jury of six people, so it wasn't 12. And, and on the third day of testimony, five of them were sitting on what literally on one side of the jury box and one was by herself. And that meant that something had gone awry in the jury room and that this one woman was all down. That's not great when you see things like that. And, and if you are a trial lawyer, which you and I are, and you and you have your head on a swivel and you're constantly watching the jury, the judge, the witness to pick up clues to help you in your presentation or to pivot or to, you know, to make a new move, a new tactical move. Th this is going to be a hard decision. Um, I'll do I'll do your question and answer, and then I'll tell you what I think the result's going to be with the verdict. Well, I'll tell you one uh, also quick story along those lines where in my first trial, I was so fascinated by what the jury's reaction to things would be. I kept on looking at them. And then so like I just wanted to keep looking to see what their, face, what their facial expressions were. And then the judge even said to me, she goes, stop looking at them. Like probably <laughs> during a break, she said, can you stop looking at them all the time? It's weird. Yeah. <laughs> but you know, it's your first, but you learn those lessons. Yes. You learn, you learn those lessons over time. So Popak, you answered pretty much four of the five oh, questions oh. that I had. But my one question is, what do you make of it when the judge told everyone in the courtroom, and I believe including the jury, to applaud yes. a witness. Now, granted, it was Veterans Day, so he was saying <sighs> applaud people who were in the armed service. But it happened that this particular witness was the use of force expert for the defense. So a very critical witness for the defense, probably the arguably the most critical witness outside of Kyle himself testifying where he didn't have to testify, but the use of force expert basically is allowed to opine whether in a given circumstance, a reasonable officer or a reasonable person in this case, um, what they would, what their response would be to external stimuli. An expert can't give an opinion as to like the ultimate liability issue, but they can give their opinion about normal responses and people's right to defend themselves in certain situations based on their expertise. And the judge had the jury and the audience applaud the witness. That yeah, he was, he was really absurd. All right. So here I'm, I'm going to give you two views. One of them is um, what do I think an appellate court would do as an error 
as an issue of error. And then I'll tell you what a trial judge should never do, because you don't even want to get into the world of whether you just committed error by doing that. There's a concept in the law called bolstering, B-O-L-S-T-E-R. And you never want to be in a position where you are bolstering improperly the credibility of a witness before that witness even takes the stand. So the judge will be accused in the appell- in the appeal <laughs> if there's a loss by the prosecution that um, that he in he inadvertently or not improperly bolstered the credibility of the witness that was about to take the stand, who was a veteran of, of army. My dad was army. So go army. But you're not supposed to do that because then it gives the, you know, sort of um, the, the, the halo effect around the witness with a jury that's supposed to be judging credibility based on testimony and what they observe in the courtroom with their five senses, not out of sympathy because he's a war veteran. So you don't do that. Even if Veterans Day happens to fall on trial day, I've never in 30 years seen a, I've seen a judge say things patriotically about upcoming holidays, regardless of who's in the room, including the jury. Fourth of July is coming and whatever. But Veterans Day, and then when the only person that, he was already stuck because when the only person out of the jury, the defense, the prosecution, courtroom observers, the only veteran in the room happened to be the use of force guy, Judge was sort of stuck. He's like, well, let's let's give a round of applause. Now, A, I'm not sure that's going to rise to the level of improper bolstering. B, I think that could have backfired with the jury. The jury are human beings, too. I'm not sure they're going to be swayed by having to applaud for the guy just before he takes the stand, although, although we'll never know. So I think on the appellate level, while bad and the judge will be chastised for it, I don't think that the an appellate court would find it to be reversible error, improper bolstering. Then there was the moment where the judge yelled at the prosecutor. I don't believe the jury no. was in. It was not in the jury's presence. No, jury so was out of the knows. room. Yeah, um, but he yelled at the prosecutor for going down, down a line of questioning that t- that suggested to the jury that this was the first time. It was accurate that it was the first time, but that Kyle Rittenhouse previously invoked his Fifth Amendment rights against self-incrimination. Now, the question wasn't, you previously invoked your right to self, but that, that's not how uh. the question was asked, but the question was asked. So this is the very first time that you've ever told anybody this story today. Isn't that right? And you had all of these months since the incident, and now you choose to tell them and, this story. And you watched all and you're testifying, having watched every other witness in the courtroom, all 30 witnesses and seeing the documents. And now you're testifying. Right. That was the that was what he was trying to do. Go ahead. Make your point, And I'll tell you what my thought is. <laughs> so the judge yelled at him and said, you know, that that's completely improper. By the way, that's the basis of what the mistrial motion is, is on that, that that came before a jury and, and that suggestion um, that to imply guilt um, within Kyle Rittenhouse for invoking. Um, we all have that constitutional right. We're all for, you may hate Kyle Rittenhouse, rightfully so, but he does have a presumption of innocence. And we should damn all be angry that it tends to seem and is that Kyle Rittenhouse's presumption of innocence seems to be far more presumptuous and more of a presumption rather of innocence than people who are different skin colors, different races and different ethnicities. So then a white 17 year old, now 18 year old, but 
Um, he still has that presumption of innocence, and you're not supposed to ask those questions. The judge was right yeah. there. Now, yeah. should the judge have yelled at him in that kind of way and kind of showboated? You know, but at the end of the day, lawyers get yelled at all the time. You know, that's not uncommon. I mean, judges, you know, there's I, some I great just, judges. There's different approaches. But I just got like yelled at you. I just got yelled at at a trial in Miami, and I liked the judge. And the judge was my former law partner from 15 years ago. I was having a technology problem. Literally, we had three or four people in a room and the Wi-Fi was groaning and straining under it. And I kept blinking in and out and he couldn't hear me. And we were at a critical moment in the hearing. And the judge said, no jury present, but the judge said, Mr. Popak, if you cannot get your technology straight, we're going to cancel this hearing today. And I'm not sure when we'll ever have it again. So I'm going to give you 15. And it was just like this, yelling and screaming. I had my client there. I mean, it looked terrible. It was just a technology problem. But the judge, <laughs> the judge was throwing the book. I'll tell the you yellow a card. You gave yourself he, a yellow. He card. gave me a yellow card. I'll tell you a story tonight. I can't tell the podcast about that issue uh, at basketball. But uh, anyway, it happens all the time. And everybody that got upset because the um, prosecutor got called on the carpet for what I think is violating the most sacrosanct right of a criminal defendant, which is not to have his Fifth Amendment assertion commented on during a trial. I thought it was too cute by half um, of trying to thread the needle uh, to avoid the violation of the Constitution by having him say, oh, you, we he actually said you you previously had taken the Fifth Amendment and now you've had the opportunity to listen to everybody else. And this is the first time you've testified. I think that's eh, foul. So and, I, and I've seen the judges get upset. I mean, I've been in cases that don't involve liberty and don't involve life threatening and victims where the judges have gotten annoyed. I had a case, another case in Florida where it was a construction case. I mean, the driest of construction defect cases for a huge project in South Florida. And the lawyer against me um, uh, had been uh, we had already had a, a ruling in my favor or no, actually in his favor, to keep out damning evidence about a prior lawsuit. And the judge said, well, as long as, Mr. Blank, you don't open the door, Mr. Popak can't go explore that in his cross-examination. Well, I'll be damned if the guy didn't accidentally open the door and started asking his own witness questions about the very lawsuit that I wanted to ask questions about. So there was a break in the action. Jury was dismissed. We all got brought up to the to the judge's bench and the judge literally took a giant binder clip and like threw it into his into his own bench and said, what were you thinking, Mr. Blank? Of course, the door is open. And then there was a later motion for a mistrial. This happens every day. But the point that you made earlier, Ben, that I don't want to lose is that the justice system is primarily uh, the criminal justice system is primarily where black and brown defendants are and are processed. And we're all up in arms about the white kid in Wisconsin and the two, two things that he did were terrible with murdering people. Every day, black and brown people suffer more injustice at the hands of our justice system, more prejudice at the hands of a jury, more prejudice in the way of sentencing by way of a judge than Rittenhouse will ever will. So yes, be up in arms about what you think's going wrong in the Rittenhouse case, but be equally up in arms about what happens every day in America in our justice system against people of color and people who are not white and privileged. What's your prediction? I think he's not going to get convicted of the intentional or reckless homicide. I think he's going to get convicted of a lesser of a lesser offense and be sentenced to about five or 10 years in jail. 
but it's 50-50. He could get off on the self-defense where the jury just doesn't buy it because there was enough evidence that um, of it. With one, with one signal that I want you and I to watch carefully, the judge did allow, and this is in favor of the prosecution, did allow the jury to be instructed on the concept of provocation. The question is whether uh, Rittenhouse provoked the 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 attack on him, the the bag being swiped at him, the skateboard being thrown at him by some of the victims. If he provoked that and the jury's instructed, if they find that he provoked that, then his self-defense goes out the window and he can be convicted. I thought that was a good sign for the prosecution that they they, they got one big win. This judge ruled on Friday that, that the, pro, the provocation instruction is going to be given to the jury once they start deliberating. Interesting, Popak. Uh, I think we covered it all there on the Kyle Rittenhouse trial. Uh, we'll keep following that. Lots of developments there. And of course, we will talk about the outcome of it likely on the next Legal AF podcast. Popak, I think we've covered it all. A nice long episode of, of Legal AF. I don't think we could have done it any shorter, honestly. No. I don't. No. And I don't think our I don't think our followers and listeners. Let's look down at the chat. Do you, do you guys want us to cut this stuff short and do it in 20 minutes or less like a TikTok? I don't think so. Uh, wait, wait, wait. It's not TikTok Popak. It's not <laughs> TikTok Popak. <laughs> or Tipak. <laughs> Popak, I always love spending the weekends with you and I'm going to get to see you in person now. So uh, drive on down to uh, downtown. I will catch you at the office where the game's about to start pretty soon, so you got to head out now. So head out, and uh, we'll be at the Clippers game for any of our Los Angeles uh, fans. If you want to do a Popakian meet and greet, I suppose we'll be at yeah. the Clipper game tonight. So we'll say, if you're at the Clipper game, we'll say hello to you. Or if you're by LA Live, we'll say hello to you. And, uh, you know, look, Popak, love spending every weekend doing this with you. You too. Um, we've uh, we've we spent a really long time going through all of these issues and uh but it didn't feel like long at all it felt like uh we've been doing this only for a few minutes but looking at the clock it suggests contrary i, I i'm gonna paraphrase judge schroeder which i know will drive people batty he had one good line when he set the two and a half hour limit for closing arguments on monday and this applies to you and i he said the mind cannot absorb what the backside cannot handle so our people sit in their chairs and on their couches for, for, you know, almost a couple hours on, on a Saturday night and then Sundays and beyond. And it's a testament to their devotion to learning about the law and the intersection of law and politics from you and I, and they've got tremendous steely backsides, which, which we appreciate. I want to thank everybody. Look, I'll tell you what will be really helpful for everybody listening to this. It would be really helpful for us if you rated this podcast as a five-star podcast. That helps the algorithm. Um, And that's a five-star podcast on wherever you get your podcast devices. You could rate us a five-star. And then please leave a review as well. Like I know Apple Podcasts has the feature and Spotify has this feature. feature, And I know other podcast services where you could leave a written review. Um, You've spent two and a half hours with us or or two hours with us. Um, It would be helpful uh, to spend another five minutes writing that positive review. And we read them. You and I read them and the brothers read them. 
Of course we do. And then yeah. I'll tell you what also would be helpful. We talked about our sponsors today. We talked about QB and where it's QBCUBII.com slash Legal AF. We talked about Athletic Greens and uh, AG1, which is athleticgreens.com slash Legal AF. We talked about Adam and Eve. You go to Adam and Eve and you type in the code Legal AF for that 50% off almost any item discount. And we talked about BetterHelp, where you go to betterhelp.com slash Legal AF. If you can, Go to those websites. You know, we pick sponsors that we think our audience will like, and we try to negotiate those discounts as well with the sponsors so that we could pass on those discounts to you on on these types of products. And so it helps the show too if you support those sponsors, if you reach out to them and tell them you heard about them on Legal AF. It helps them renew, and that keeps the show going. Um, Popak and I like to keep the show going, um, and we want to make the show somewhat, uh, economical to do. Um, but it doesn't have to be, but it helps a little bit if we can pay for the mics and pay for the sound and the editors and all blue the paintings, things. my blue paintings are costly <laughs> and all the things that, uh, go into it. We learned a lot on this podcast today, especially that Popak is okay with being called a silver Fox, but not incredibly enthusiastic about it he is enthusiastic about the people who say he should run for ag popak any final words before we close out no i I think this was a spectacular show i can tell by the people that are with us that 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 they overall feel the same way so i'm I'm looking forward to seeing you uh in a little bit and then uh doing this all again uh rinse repeat for next week shout out to the Midas mighty we'll see you next week